Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, today we are going to spend uh, the day talking to a writer, a writer who has exerted an influence over many people, me included. I actually can remember very vividly uh, reading Nicholson Baker's work very early on. Uh, I think the book The Mezzanine uh, had maybe an excerpt or something that started in The New Yorker. I can remember a day in a newspaper newsroom, a daily newspaper newsroom, where people were kind of handing this guy's work around and saying, you have to see this. Uh, And since then, uh, well, he has just continued to write a a lot of very interesting fiction and nonfiction. He's coming to the Mark Twain House, which is the occasion for getting him on this show. That'll be this Friday from 7 to 9 p.m. You'll be celebrating Mark Twain's 183rd birthday, uh, and you can buy tickets uh, at themarktwainhouse.org. We'll tell you more about that as we go along here. But right now, uh, joining us from a far-flung studio in Bangor, Maine, but they're very nice people there. They seem like so solicitous and nice there. Uh, Nicholson Baker is with us, author of 10 novels, including The Mezzanine, five works of nonfiction, including most recently Substitute, Going to School with Thousands of Kids. Nicholson Baker, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Colin. I'm so happy. And yes, they're very nice people here, and, and they are very adept at hooking up at, uh, with uh, with you guys, and I'm happy to be on your show. Yeah, they were so nice, and they were asking us if we were happy, which is not a question we get asked a lot. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, so he, one of the things that you have done over the course of your career is contemplate uh, your own relationship uh, and to other writers, to other writers uh, whom you hold in high esteem. So here you are as a featured speaker at the Mark Twain House. Uh, what does that do? What kind of stirrings does that set up in you? Well, it's intimidating. It's it's uh, worrying. I guess the the idea of giving the Mark Twain birthday lecture mm-hmm. is actually terrifying. I, I, <laughs> I and I think what what the only thing that you can do is kind of cave in and say, well, I'm going to say, and I'm going to, and I believe that Mark Twain is a a, a beautifully minded, fluent, funny writer, and uh, and here's some stuff that I wrote <laughs> because what else are you going to do? I mean, we're all right. Re- we're all trying to come up with stuff that's true about the world. Mark Twain was there. He smoked a lot of cigars. He said a lot of really interesting things. He went all over the world and it's a new world now. So here we are. Well, not to spoil anything for you, but when you get there, you'll get a tour of the house, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. But the other oh, thing yeah. that they will probably do is take you into the archives, which are housed elsewhere. Uh, and they, what they like to do um, is pull out five or ten things that they think a visiting guest might be interested in. And, oh. and, and, and so I can tell you, for example, and this is sort of right up your alley, one of the things that they will almost undoubtedly pull out will be volumes – owned by Twain, in which he wrote very theatrically in the margins. In other words, either he will be, you know, insulting James Fenimore Cooper in the margins of James <laughs> Fenimore Cooper's own book, or just writing whatever. I, and, and there's something very stagey about it. I mean, these books belonged to him, and so the marginalia that he's writing, you wouldn't expect would be intended for a wider audience, but you almost get the feeling that it is. Uh, but, I mean, this 
I'm guessing this will be exciting to you because so much uh, of your work and thought has been devoted to the question of things that happen on, on a page, on paper, things that get recorded and ideally preserved. So I'll let you t- take the baton well, and run with it. <laughs> I, I, I think, well, Twain is a big, big personality. So mm. if Twain writes a little bit of marginalia, you know that some part of him is thinking, you know, that maybe that's going to be publishable you yeah. know he's 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 that big so i and the mise en page the the idea of putting stuff on the page in different ways has always interested me uh writing things around the edges putting footnotes at the bottom what what is a page anyway why do we have the, why is it helpful to look at something straight on that has that is fixed what what does that do? How does that sit in your mind? I've always been interested in that, and it's it's even more interesting now because because with ebooks it it doesn't always sit. It's not always put on the page the same way, and so I have to think about what that does to the feeling of reading a book. It it is interesting too. One of the things that I've taken to doing. Because I'm impatient, and when I want to get going in the morning, I, I uh, go in and turn on my laptop. But while the laptop is kind of making up its mind what it wants to do and <laughs> and booting itself up and, and thinking a little bit about what's gone on in the past or whatever it's doing, I have like a copy of The Atlantic or something there, which I'm reading um, while I'm waiting for the laptop to get ready to be a laptop. Uh, and there's such a it's such a weird juxtaposition because you know it, you you are reminded so vividly that your relationship to something that you're holding in your hand. That's on paper that that you could write marginalia into, yeah. uh, you know, is so different from this thing that's about to take over your senses. It's so true. I do it too. I think you know. Uh, I'm I'm waiting for some search to happen. I work. I have a. I'm in the middle of writing a big thing that's about the year 1950, 51, and so I am searching through a whole lot of stuff. It actually takes a while, mm-hmm. and while I'm thinking. I'll I'll look at I'll actually look at a book on yeah. a paper and it's sort of the whole attitude toward what toward reading has changed because reading on paper has become the thing that you do while you're waiting for the electronic little machine to do what it you really need it to do. That's kind of scary, but it's true. Right <laughs> there. Are- I mean, uh, that's exactly what, what's happening. And it feels sort of false and wrong that we would relegate paper to this kind of, you know, mistress that we're visiting on the way to our, our digital wife or something. Um, and, and, of course, the other thing we use paper to do, uh, I, I mean, I, I, know, I know a few people who bring their iPads to the toilet. It's still like, right, you still have to have magazines and newspapers there in a little basket. Uh, I mean, it would yeah. be weird to read your phone on the toilet. Well, you know, I talked to this guy. I was asking him about um, iPhones and and Kindles and stuff. This guy who's quite got a quite a good design sense, mm-hmm. and he said, "I don't want you to, I don't want you. This is not for attribution. <laughs> but the problem that I have with the MacBook is that aluminum is so cold oh, in the morning. Yeah, you know. So I I think people actually take their computers." And, in the bathroom, hell, I've done it. I, I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not proud. I've done it. <laughs> but I do want to say about books that what I've found over and over again is that when you bond with a book tentatively, electronically, when you've read an, an ebook, 
and let's say it's a nonfiction book, a piece of history, at some point you realize, this is a damn good book. This mm. guy really did it. He nailed it. He's got a lot to say. At some point, I, I go out and I make the commitment and I buy the paperback. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because I want to support the person, because usually they're dead, mm. but because um, I will get more out of that experience if I have a fixed printed set of pages. This is universally true, um, and I've done it, I, I suppose, hundreds of times now, because the footnotes are, are in a consistent position on the page, you end notes, so your sources, and then what they're saying is there, and you can remember it, you keep going back to it. So I do think that there is this wonderful collaboration that's happening, which is that people <laughs> now buy the ebook version just to sort of dip, the, dip into it, and then they, when they really know that they want to be committed to that book, they buy the physical book because they know that that's the only way they're going to get all the juice out of it. Um, we should say that part of your life has been an effort, uh, sort of a one-person effort at preservation uh, of some of this stuff, whether we're talking about card catalogs uh, or things from the San Francisco Library or newspaper collections, right? You, you, you have... For your own, you're sort of an eccentric millionaire without the million millions of dollars, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can do a lot in, in the world of paper storage. You can do a lot with a little bit of. A, I had an IRA with some money in it because I had had a bestseller or two in the '90s. That's a long time ago, but um, but uh, I I was in the middle of writing a book about the fact that all this, all these bound volumes of newspapers were tossed out. When the when the microphone existed, it began in the fifties. Recordac, the the Kodak subsidiary, put, sort of pushed it on libraries as a way of of saving their space problems. And uh, I realized that it was, you know, a really sad thing that was happening that was in progress. And then I found out that the British Library was auctioning off a huge collection of newspapers bound, not kept in fancy, artificially cool storage, but just room temperature for 100 years. And that's that one of the runs that they had was Joseph Pulitzer's own newspaper, The New York World. Mm. And I knew, I, I felt I was the only person on the planet who knew at that point that there were no other surviving runs of that paper. And, and it just felt like you know, are you a journalist or are you a human being? I mean, obviously, um, this is something that is of extreme and wonderful importance to history. And so my wife and I started this nonprofit and we ended up um, buying at auction, they wouldn't stop the auction, at auction a whole, whole lot of, I don't know, tons, 20 tons, 30 tons of newspapers that came in 18-wheeler trucks into uh, a space mill space in Rollinsford, New Hampshire that we'd rented. Were you, were you not did, sharing it with the Humpty Dumpty Potato Chips Company? How how, how well you read. Yes, <laughs> it was the Humpty. You know, Humpty Dumpty Potato Chips, I, I tell you that my kids loved them. We not only ate Humpty Dumpty Potato Chips and especially <laughs> the popcorn, we actually flung Humpty Dumpty popcorn under the tires of the car to help. Oh, yes. it because Because, you see, they had to throw out 
the bags of 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 popcorn. It, it, this was the, the mill. Let me say the mill was huge. Yeah. It was one of those grand New England textile mills that was on a river, and we had something like uh, two thousand square feet. But it happened that this old guy, his job was to take the crimp date, out of date Humpty Dumpty bags <laughs> and put them in the dumpster. Mm. And he had to go through our newspaper repository to access the dumpster, which went was was a chute that went down th- out a window. They finally changed that. But and this guy was so great, and he actually built a wall so that the newspapers would be protected. And I, I, I was just thinking about him the other day. But, but uh, because there were always so many of these potato chips and stuff hanging around there, my kids kind of ate an awful lot of them. They grew up eating Humpty Dumpty. It, it sounds like sort of Weimar currency, you know, or something, you know. Where <laughs> <laughs> like the, the potato chips were no longer as valuable as a potato chip, you know. They they yeah. actually fallen below that in value. So popcorn could be used for traction because it was it, it lost its value as popcorn. <laughs> Uh, yes, and above us, above the newspaper. So we're talking about a one-of-a-kind, hideously rare newspaper collection. And I don't want to say that we were doing a good job because we were not. But we were we were just doing the job. We were we were the intermediaries, my wife and I, uh, in keeping these things. But above us was was um, Dysart, I guess it was. It's a it was a French company that sold silk long underwear. Mm-hmm. And we could hear them arguing and talking about the fact that the company was downsizing stuff. And it, it was so strange because, and then I would go to a pile of, let's say, the New York Herald Tribune from 1939, and I'd open it up, and it would be this world. It's just fantastically complicated uh, rainforest of, of stuff that was was there and it it totally changed the way i thought about history because i was not very interested in american history i'm kind of and and suddenly i saw that that every day every week of life as it as even as it was recorded with, imperfectly on a newspaper is completely engrossing and and that that was um I think one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had really was was just opening these volumes and now they're all safely at Duke University and people who and they're the Duke University rare books and special collections so it, they're valued they're understood as being extremely valuable at that point they weren't but um but it was really a privilege just to be able to open the volumes right and and so th- contained there in some of your statements is, I think, that that notion. I mean, when you look at these old newspapers and not just, you know, the blaring headlines, but if you look at them more deeply and see things that are being bought and sold and discussed in little tiny, you know, tombstone things at the bottom of the page and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah you really get this yeah. sense of, of life being lived. And, and one of your mottos is one of our mottos here. I guess you know a little bit about this show, uh, which is everything is interesting. Everything is interesting. Um, yes. And and so, I mean, a newspaper is a great window into that. I mean, we're doing a show next week 
which I think we should just have you on as a guest for anyway. We're doing a show next week about towels, and we haven't really decided exactly why towels are interesting. It seems like a very Baker-esque uh, <laughs> you know, thing to get into. But yeah. but this is something, I, I don't know if you want to say more about this, but I, to me, if there's one thing that threads through your work, it's that insistence that everything is at least potentially interesting. Yes. Um, the first person I heard that, who, to say that was in the New York Times Magazine section, William Whitworth, Whitworth who was uh, an editor at The New Yorker and then was the editor of The Atlantic was talking about William Sean mm-hmm. and he said, you know, he's interested in everything. And it just was so, it's such a lovely thing. You know, it's so true because it, that's what an editor is, is a person who is just curious about everything and they don't have time maybe to go into everything themselves, but they have writers that can, can do it. So William Sean was interested in everything. And I, and I, I, you know, I guess there's some things I'm less, but, but towels look, Towels will be at the top of the list because, I mean, what, what we, I was just thinking about them this morning, actually, because I, I wash my hands and I have a, you know, a bit of a cold and I thought, well, I want to use the towel, but I don't want to use the towel in a way that would compromise the towel for the future. So I'll just dry my hands around the edge of the towel, <laughs> you know, and, um, but towels are fascinating. How long do you keep them? What, what is it this, you know? And, and it, of course, you get into this embarrassing thing of talking about people's secret lives. But right. I think you're I think you're onto something. I'm going to listen. Right. Um, have you have you heard a, about a podcast called Everything is Alive? No. And I, I'm really behind the eight ball with podcasts. That, do, that I, doesn't I surprise should. me. That doesn't surprise me that you're behind the eight ball. But this is one you should catch up on because it, what it is is it's a series of interviews with inanimate objects. For example, they, they would interview oh, yeah. a, a towel and the towel would yes. talk about how it feels about some of the things that are deposited on the towel. Or I mean, the, and the, yes. the, the people who play these in, 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 uh, inanimate objects really bring a lot to this. And um one, I heard one. Yeah. I heard one. It was. I heard the one on ninety nine percent invisible. It was a beautiful one. Uh, I can't remember which what it was. But, but see, the, that's but that's ninety nine percent invisible. And this this is. I sort of wonder if you ever think that you have kind of a legacy. That I mean, maybe Roman Mars would have done ninety nine percent invisible, whether there was a Nichols and Baker or not. I have no idea. But I can tell you that when the mezzanine came out, mm. you know. A lot of writers, me included, I was a full-time writer at that time, Mm. we were just sort of looking at this thing thinking, we have to write a different way. (laughs) <laughs> we have to That's write so more nice to we hear. have to write more like this guy we have to write I can remember I don't I haven't looked at the mezzanine in a really long time but I mean I can right. remember things like the felt crunch as you described pressing down on a stapler of its <laughs> brontosaurus head and the and the crab's embrace of the tines as they wrap around the paper and I remember thinking this it's like Ulysses, except there's no Dublin and no <laughs> masturbation at the end. And but it's it's sort of like this. This is sort of what sentience is like. And but in such incredible detail. And I I do I look around at some of this stuff and I think there's sort of like a way in which you know these are the children of Nicholson Baker. I don't think you probably God. permit yourself such grandiose thoughts. But well, Colin, I mean, I I don't know. I'm all befuddled and happy, <laughs> but and 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 glowing, and. I I I do think that ninety nine percent invisible. I I don't th- I don't know that even know who who I am, but I certainly something that I felt 
deeply that that I now feel when I listen to a podcast like that, which is, and I even put it in a footnote in the mezzanine. You know that people watch the news like robots. I said, but you know, there's they're blind to all the stuff that's happening, and that's basically it. Ninety nine percent of what we're doing is not we're not consciously thinking about that because we've got uh, six different stories that are kind of the cable news or or the uh, Google news headlines of the day and those are the stories that we're following and the stories the real stories are always these things like will Hellman's redesign the mayonnaise jar or whatever (laughs) it is Um, the real stuff of life the real feeling and I I'm so glad that Hellman's hasn't designed the redesigned the mayonnaise jars because I cling now to Philippe Berio olive oil and a couple of other products that are the same you know because we have so much change now <laughs> and it's bewildering and we need to have some more stability but uh, anyway. I, th- I think the other thing that they do well which is also baker like is identify something that you've been looking at for a long time, kind of at the, out of the corner of your eye, but not really kind of confronting in your physical environment. And the one that springs to mind, they did an episode about, I don't even, I have now lost the actual term of art for these creatures, but these um, elongated, featureless, m- kind of plastic inflated men that are just sort of outside auto oh. dealerships and tire places who are just kind yes. of flailing around constantly with any <laughs> little breeze that takes them and whipping back and forth in, in this almost sort of, you you know, Hades-like constant agonizing torture <laughs> of yes, being just, yes. you know, twisted around by the wind. And, yes. and I, like, I've been aware of them and kind of upset by them and, and, and wondering why anybody thinks that that's a good way to promote something since they're both frightening and pitiable at the same time. Um, and it's like finally somebody did something about that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I remember there was a show on TV – Ray Romano was a middle-aged man, yeah. and it always began with one of those oh. half-inflated, flopped, slightly not quite able to reach, you know, striving, hoping but failing kinds of things. <laughs> and and so I I haven't heard the ninety-nine percent invisible, but good for them. Yeah, great. Yeah, you know, we need we need to actually look around and ask what is. What is it that we actually want to think about as opposed to what it is that, you know, that that this kind of sports mash of political disagreement wants us to think about? What is it that's really genuinely – what is the texture of life? Right. A word yeah. that you use either in mezzanine or room temperature was undocumented, which now has a whole other unfortunate set of oh, meanings. But yeah. at the time, you were using it that way, right? That there's just all this stuff in our environment that's undocumented. Yeah. There are details yeah. which, in fact, do make up the world that we live in. But you were kind of trying to, I don't know, get them down somehow, get them down on paper. Yeah, because it just didn't feel – it felt as if um, – we were going to lose them. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that's the. I mean, basically, the, the the. I think the instinct that writers have, is 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 a preservational one. Is just if I don't write about this social moment or this this sight of a certain thing happening, and that's what uh, what newspaper reporters have too. If I don't say that there was broken glass falling from the half shot out dome of the Capitol building in this 
war-torn city on this date. Nobody will remember that the glass actually fell on the crowd. And it's just a terror. You know, it's, it's, it's exciting, but it, it, it's kind of terrifying that so much gets lost and has to get lost because we're human beings and we have to forget most of what of human, the human species has lived through. But at, at a, any given moment, if you're a writer, you have the ability to keep something alive. All right, so that's a beautiful place for us to take a break. And anyway, Betsy Kaplan says we have to take a break right now. And I think, Nicholson Baker, you've gotten to know Betsy Kaplan well enough to know that it's unwise to gainsay her. Uh, So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll have more Nicholson Baker. We are talking to the writer Nicholson Baker, author of 10 novels, including The Mezzanine, and five works of nonfiction, including most recently Substitute, Going to School with Thousands of Kids. He's joining us from the studios uh, of WMEH in Bangor, Maine, where they are very nice people. But he'll be joining uh, you uh, if you go to the Mark Twain House this Friday, uh, November 30th from 7 to 9 p.m. He will be uh, enabling you to celebrate Mark Twain's 183rd birthday. You can buy tickets at marktwainhouse.org, and you can bring staplers for him to sign, to autograph. Um, ideally, you should bring books, though, not staplers. Or bring card catalogs for him to autograph. Make him <laughs> autograph every single card. Uh, any kind of, anything can happen. And I think there's like, isn't, Betsy, isn't there like champagne and cake and stuff like that? Yeah, it'll be nice. You'll have a good time. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, it's going to be so much fun. So, I feel like you should just come on the show every day because I, I, I have that much that I need to talk to you about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. So, yes. I, I feel, I'm, I'm, I, I'm happy with that idea. Let's do it. All right. So, can we talk about Wikipedia? Yes. Yeah. Certainly. You, I mean, I have this fairly strange and intense relationship with Wikipedia, but I'm not the guest on this show. You are. So, let's talk about your either strange or not strange, intense or non-intense attitude towards Wikipedia. Uh, well, I just gave $5 today. That's yeah. how strange and intense it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Jimmy Wales is still on there. He's still asking for money, and I think he deserves money. I think they do a wonderful thing. To, I, in 2008, or 2000, and, uh, anyway, a long time ago, <laughs> 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I um, wanted to write a book about the Golden Book Encyclopedia covers, as a, getting them as a kid. My mm-hmm. mother bought them, and they were beautifully painted. And I pitched this. Pitch is a fancy word for. I wrote an email to Bob Silvers at the New York Review of Books, saying, "Would you like me to write about the uh, Golden Book Encyclopedia?" And he said, "Well, you know, okay, but what about Wikipedia?" And um, I, I was using it all the time. I mean, I used it. I used it. I used it eighty-seven times a day. And I thought, well, you know, yes. So I. I actually then moved from being a consumer of Wikipedia to being a person who actually knows what's going on with Wikipedia, which is to be an editor and a person who struggles. And there were, and I found that there were all these people who were deletionists who wanted to, uh, to prune out articles and that there would be kind of posses and gangs of deletionists who would gang up on an article. And the whole thing became an interesting... Um, it's just an interesting patch of something novel that had all the normal human frailties and emotions in it. And so I wrote about 
what it was like to try to save articles from deletion, <laughs> realizing that at any given day, thousands were being deleted. So mm. it's a losing battle. But And then what, why would I want to save... There was one article, I guess, there was a guy who drunk a certain kind of chemical that he thought was healthful, and it had turned his face blue. And so his, there was a piece about him in the Wikipedia. He was the blue man. And, you know, it was very interesting. I thought, well, I mean, you know. But there were people who thought that an encyclopedia has to have a certain aesthetic. And it has to be about not all of life, but about what is, you know, important about life. And since we're dealing with something that's digital, that is, that is infinite, has, its capacity is infinite, infinitely expandable, I didn't agree with that. So I then, and so the way you save an article is by making it bristle with citations. Mm -hmm. So then I would have to find that there were actually five newspaper articles about this blue man guy. Right. And then I would fit, put those in, and then it was harder for them to delete. And this became, and then I realized that there were people who, spent, who had spent several years doing this, and this was their life, was battling with other people about whether to delete or keep articles. And that's when I realized that I had to stop <laughs> because I wasn't going to write anything of my own ever again. You know? Right, but I think what you're talking about, and this is something that I, I encourage people, particularly what I'm teaching, I say, look, if you're going to use Wikipedia, then you should become an editor. You should just be, become a contributor. You should work on, on an article about something that you presumably know something about because otherwise you're using a tool all the time that you really don't adequately understand. So if I put up a sign next to a bridge you know, leading to Berwick, Maine, saying this build, bridge was built entirely using information glean from Wikipedia. <laughs> like everything that we know about designing this bridge we got from Wikipedia, would you drive across that bridge? It's <laughs> yeah. kind of an interesting question, right? <laughs> yes, it is. It, it is. I think, oh, sure, I would, would? I would just forge on ahead, <laughs> figuring that there's probably going to be one span that's going to be really screwed up and you'll probably <laughs> risk f falling to your death. But if you can just <laughs> stop before that, you'll get, you'll get across. Right. Because there, at any given moment, they're going to be you know, so-called vandals and people who are messing with it. But that's part of the amazing... That's why it's such a powerful and positive, I think, force. Is well, it's, it's, it's a utopian experiment, right? I mean, yes. there's something utopian yes. in its concept. Yes, it's, so, it's beautifully utopian in that it not only is it saying anybody can do that, anybody can edit, and we'll keep track and we'll police it, or not police it, we will groom it and smooth it so that even though you are inept, it, it will end up being more or less okay. But it works. It, so that it is the primary source of information, I would say, for almost everybody. And yet it is entirely done by volunteers. And that's, a, that's a, such a different model than anything else out there. So I've been gung-ho about Wikipedia forever. When I was a substitute teacher I would I would say you, you know take a look at Wikipedia because <laughs> you, you know it's it's not necessarily but of course it's very tricky to to tell students to look at it because it's obviously it's false and I here's another thing that I run into I write books to, and I find out secret little things about some tiny aspect of history right mm -hmm. and when I do that I realize 
I could put that in that Wikipedia article because I know that that Wikipedia article is actually wrong. Mm -hmm. But then I think, and this is where I, I sort of, I think, well, but if you do that, if I fix the Wikipedia article and then I publish the book using the, that mentions that fact, people are going to think that I took it from <laughs> Wikipedia. So I can't do that. I have to wait. And that's a real problem because I, because errors are in the world that I know about that I have not fixed or I haven't, I haven't expanded an article that I know sh needs expansion because I don't want to th be thought of as being, you know, a person who just looks up stuff on Wikipedia and then parrots it. So I, w I want to also talk about uh, what happens when you, since you just talked about that, what happens when you write something, publish something, and then you can sort of see it affect people's lives. And so I'll give you uh, a really uh, embarrassing example of my own, and then I'll bring up an, uh, an example that's probably more embarrassing to you. Uh, that seems fair. So um, in one of your books, it's one of the first two, I think, uh, you discuss the whole question of um, urinary embarrassment, uh, like what if you can't pee at the urinal? And then the character, the narrator, says that his solution to this is imagining just turning and gleefully urinating all over the people at the other urinals. You know, right. and that the minute right. he does that and, and, and partakes of the freedom and the license and the humor that's kind of contained in that idea, he has no problem peeing. So I haven't really exactly done this, but I, like I've thought about it a couple of times. You know, I was like, like, what if I couldn't be? That's what I would do. Uh, and then I start <laughs> laughing. And then so I've actually used your books in real life, sort of. Now, we also know or are told that Monica Lewinsky presented Bill Clinton with a copy of Vox. I don't know, A, yes. whether you believe that or not, and B, how does, how does, how does that make you feel? Well, I want to believe it. <laughs> okay. I, I hoped that it's true. Okay, first of all, thank you for saying that you tried out my technique. Well, I didn't actually pee on anybody. I just thought of it. No, 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 I don't mean that. <laughs> Nobody, look, all of this is in our minds. Right. I mean, f come on, including whatever's in Vox is just yeah. it people it's it's all about that's what the not books do is they say here's this private world of the mind and let's let's get it going mm -hmm. so in the case of um yeah well Monica Lewinsky yeah. read Vox mm -hmm. this is this is my I got a call long after Vox had its moment had come and gone so Vox came out in 1992 actually on Valentine's Day and it was a book about two naked people talking on the phone mm -hmm. and it was a lot of fun to write and I and it's my my only I mean it's one of the few well it's not my only because but it's it, it it's one of the few love stories that I have been able to do I'm happy with it mm -hmm. uh, anyway it came and went and it completely changed our life because we were able to move from a house in upstate New York to Berkeley California where my wife Grew up and and there was a moment there where I actually felt wealthy, which is really a terrifying thing. No longer, but <laughs> uh, th but then several years later, I think three years later, I got a call from David Streitfeld, who was a yeah. who is a New York Times writer and a very nice guy, very mm -hmm. good reader, and he said, "What do you? What's your reaction to this idea that that Monica Lewinsky gave Bill Clinton Vox?" And that was the first I'd heard of it, and it was exciting. And and it, suddenly I thought, well, this is a different way of being a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, I am now part. I am now part of the current of events, and that's ho a whole different thing. I'm actually changing people's lives. And so the first feeling was kind of excitement and flattery. I'm part of a national scandal, 
And then the second part is, wait a second, lives are being wrecked with by the, the use of my book, which was meant to be a kind of seduction of the reader, a chronicle of a, of a mutual seduction, is now being used to take down a president. Part it's one tiny datum. Right. Know, Although in, I think I could, effort. I think I could take you off that hook. I, I, you know, I mean, I was thinking about this today because uh, another podcast you haven't listened to is called Slow Burn, which really, uh, in oh. its second season, documents the unfolding of that whole story and that whole scandal. And and oh. it doesn't. I don't think it mentions your book. I can't remember. But one of the things that becomes clear is that Monica Lewinsky's expectations were highly unrealistic, but very romantic, and that there may have even come a moment where Bill Clinton was something like in love with Monica Lewinsky. I don't think it was anything as long a stretch as uh, as Monica Lewinsky's feeling about that. But that, you know, and then I was thinking about your book today and thinking she gave him that book, not, you know, as some kind of cheap turn on, but because so much of what they were going to have to do was going to have to exist in this much more circums- circumscribed world than than a typical relationship, and that words probably would or could be incredibly important in a situation like that. Um, I think you should well, feel really good about that, actually. I, I do. F- I mean, in a strange way, I do feel good about it because I, I always liked Monica Lewinsky. I liked her actually more than Bill Clinton, I have to f- honestly say, but, um, and I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, what, what was pleasing what what is always pleasing to me is the no, is the idea that somebody doesn't just go to the store and get a copy of a book but gives another person their own book mm-hmm. and i this is what was and this is what came up with the the Lewinsky business was that uh Lewinsky Monica Lewinsky had bought the book from Kramer Books in Washington and uh with a charge card and so then the uh the kind of machinery of getting Bill Clinton was to subpoena the charge card records from Kramer Books to prove that Lewinsky had bought this book and owned it and then had given, and that was evidence that she had given it to Bill Clinton. Anyway, the thing that was pleasing to me was this was the actual copy that she had l- read. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the great thing about a physical book, actually, is that you can say... My fingers have all riffled through all these pages. My mind has riffled through these pages. Here's this thing that that I have physically been through. Now here you go physically through it. And that's a that's kind of a very primitive act of friendship. And, and so I was pleased to be part of that. Oh yeah, that aspect of it. I I, I, th- I again I have to take a break. Betsy Kaplan is telling me, but I I, I remember there was a really long kind of um, pseudo uh, Victorian um, novel by Charles Palliser called The Quincunx. It was really really long, and I read it over a summer. And it was one of those things mm-hmm. where I was like sweating on it and getting <laughs> you know, maybe grease on it and suntan stuff. It was like alive by the end of the summer. And it's like eight hundred pages long, so it takes. You know, it was like this yeah. thing that was. Kind of, you know, it was sort of like the the French attitude towards cheese, where they treat it as sort of a household <laughs> pet, and the cat walks on top of it. And you know, this book wasn't just like an inert thing anymore. And you know, well, actually, just l- we'll leave it there. We don't want to extend that particular line <laughs> of thinking to Vox, not just now, anyway. Let's take a break. We'll come back with more Nicholson okay. Victor. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Updike. On tomorrow's show, there really are people who believe the Earth is flat. We'll talk to them. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back, and we're talking to Nicholson Baker. Uh, if I have to explain to you who Nicholson Baker is, we have all kinds of problems ahead of us and not very much time left in which to solve them. But Nicholson Baker will be at the Mark Twain House this Friday, November 30th from 7 to 9. Get your tickets. You're going to have a Mark Twain's birthday party. Uh, so buy tickets at themarktwainhouse.org. It's, Mike, it's Mark Twain's 183rd birthday. I think he said no presents. Um, so Nicholson Baker <laughs> is joining us from Bangor, Maine, from some beautiful and very amiable studios uh, there. I don't know. I'm like, I, like I, this is sort of the end of the show, and I have like, like eight different topics that I, I'm juggling. I'm trying to decide. I'll, I'll start with one. Okay. So okay. Um, you wrote uh, one of my favorite uh, of your books is You and I, which is this book about sort of your relationship between, with, at a distance, at a remove, your relationship with John Updike. Um, and now, you know, in some ways, there might be people who have that relationship with you. Some of them might even be showing up you know, for an event like the one on Friday night in in Hartford. Do you ever think about that? Think about the way that you were thinking and writing about Updike in that book and how it would be applied if you were sort of the other person in in a similar kind of reader-writer relationship? Yeah, I, I, of course I think about it. I, I'm 61 years old. At some point you have to realize that you're not 14 anymore. You're not 18. <laughs> you are a person who has reached a certain stage in life. And it's just, but I, what makes it not a comparison is that what Updike was able to do was really, I mean, I know I have many reservations about many aspects of his writing, I guess I could have to say, Hmm. but the man was just a tremendous prose genius. And Mm -hmm. Even now, you know, I'm still grieving that he's gone because he could put together, he could sneak an adjective in, he could make a sentence balance, he could do something with the poise of a paragraph that nobody else could do. And he did it, you know, so steadily. And the New Yorker was at its peak. I mean, everything is connected, you know. So Mm. Updike and the fortunes of 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 the kind of golden age of American magazines uh, went together. Cheever, Updike, Maeve Brennan, the long-winded lady, all these people, they were in this magazine that was just jam-packed with ads, was rich, and was, was really good. And and he did it. And it, it it's still just kind of shocking to think how much he was able to write. Now, some of this stuff... Uh, some of the fiction, there's a cruelty, there's a meanness sometimes that I'm not sure about, but there's also just so much life in all of what he did. And and he so he just completely blows me out of the water. Uh, and so I don't think of it that way, but I, I do have to say that somebody actually wrote a book called B and Me, if you can believe it. <laughs> so, so you and I... Yeah then spawned this book called Be and Me, and it was sort of a traumatic experience, and I really felt for Updike when this book came out because, you know, here, uh, he had to roll with the fact that this, you know, this guy, me, was writing a book in which, you know, sort of like, I'm your biggest fan, and, you know, when you're you're a fan, you can find some faults, and I'm gonna really put them in there, 
And you never know. And this is the problem. You never know with somebody who's a real enthusiast when the zinger is going to come in, the thing that they don't like. And that hurts much more than all the things that they do like helps, you know, <laughs> because of the way we're all human beings. So I thought he did a very courtly and wonderful job at rolling with the fact that I had written this book. I, I went back and read uh, the little section from his um, self-consciousness uh, where he's talking about his childhood blocks. And it reads an awful lot like Nichols and Baker. I think the two, uh, you know the part I'm talking about, he's talking about the intaglio blocks and the way that they may be connected oh. into the notion of printing. And I mean, it's it's a real sort of meditation yeah. on a set of physical yeah. objects. Uh, but you guys are both really interested in, interested in what it means to be sentient. You know, I mean, that's the thing you, that you share, I think, is yeah. can can you recreate the experience of sentience just using words. How close can you get? Uh, I don't know. Does that make any sense? Of course. And I think the Updike, one of the things that's really interesting about Updike and why everybody should read Self-Consciousness, which is his memoir, didn't get much attention at the time, but it's really, really beautiful, many beautiful things in it, um, is that this man was operating, <laughs> his teeth were gave him unbelievable discomfort and pain and and he had terrible asthma he had terrible psoriasis he had all kinds of afflictions including the stutter and one of his most beautiful pieces is in self-consciousness it's called getting the words out and it's about how he had to deal with the stutter and what sort of specific social situations brought on stutters and it was usually men like plumbers who wanted to talk to him about a particular tricky piece of plumbing in the basement, as opposed to women who maybe, or people who wanted something from him, mm -hmm. he never stuttered with. You know, it was just, it's a really interesting, beautiful piece of prose. And uh, now I'm going to test my memory because I, I, I'm apologizing in advance if I've mixed two things up. Were you the one right. who also described seeing him eating turkey at a Howard Johnson's or was that somebody else? I've never seen him eat turkey. Oh. I okay, never saw the you man eat turkey at Howard Johnson's, <laughs> but I wish I had. Yeah, I did now I have see to track that once. down. <laughs> <clears throat> I have seen him. I saw, I was walking across Boston in Boston Garden one day. I, I made a living, I, live, I supported myself as a sort of temp typist in the 80s. Uh, before I was married, and then um, there was this guy walking toward me, and he was very natally dressed, and he, I think he wore one of those sort of golfing hats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I realized that was this is John Updike, who's walking towards me on a path, you know. And it was a narrow path. There was no, it was I couldn't just sort of go to one side and look at the tulips. I had to just sort of keep walking, and I didn't want to bother him because you know he's a famous guy who's got his own concerns and uh, uh so i just <laughs> nodded at him mm -hmm. and he gave me a puzzled look and th that's th that's one of the few times i actually interacted with him was a nod i i feel like one rule that i have is you can always say to anybody under almost any set of circumstances i'm a big fan and then just say nothing else and <laughs> yes and nobody minds that you know I mean, Nobody if, if you run into Justin Bieber right after this interview and you say, I'm a big fan, that'll actually make his day. I mean, he isn't doing this so that no one will say that to him. Uh, this is so true. This is so absolutely true. Of course. I mean, we're, we're all, I think people don't understand. We're all naked, cowering, 
wishful, hopeful human beings who are just trying to do our best and get through it and get onto the next thing. And and so if somebody says, you know, I I really like, and then especially if they say, I really liked X, and it's something that you even maybe forgot about. Yeah, but that could be too far, yeah. too. Like if someone That's walks too, up to you, yeah. and you and says to you, I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> you know the thing where you talk about peeing on other people at urinals? See, you don't want to hear that, maybe. you know. Oh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to hear <laughs> that. It depends on what kind of mood but, you're in. Yeah. No, I mean, and it's not, I, I don't, look, let's just clarify that we're not talking about some strange fetish or something. This is right. a mental trick <laughs> that allows you to have success in the bathroom. That's all it is. It's nothing more than that. But it's a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> all right, so we're out of time. I don't, what do you want to talk about tomorrow? Let's make a list of things and we'll email them back and forth. Okay. We'll just keep doing okay. shows until we run out of stuff. But this, this is was a, so much fun, Colin. This Thank is really you. fun for me too. I mean, really, you, you influenced me a tremendous amount, as well as many, many other people who try to put words together. Nicholson Baker is going to be in Hartford on November thirtieth. Uh, he will be at the Mark Twain House from seven to nine. You could be there too. You need a ticket from the MarkTwainHouse.org uh, and celebrate the birthday and uh, have cake and champagne with Nicholson Baker. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I can't imagine anyone not doing that. Well, thanks for dropping by today anyway. Thank you, Colin. Take care. Okay, and goodbye to the rest of you. Actually, tomorrow we are going to be back. Should I say that? I guess we should say that. We're talking to people who do believe that the Earth is flat or at least don't believe that there's sufficient proof that the Earth isn't flat. And I'm really looking forward to that.